Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors, and today we're going to be in Psalm 48, and we got to talk quick today. We got a lot of good songs. We had a cool vision time, uh, which means, you know, Ben can't talk as long, but what do you know? I still talk for a long time. So we got to go fast. You got to quick and click and tap your way fast to Psalm 48. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we'll have those words on the screen. We'd love to give you a Bible on the way out in a modern English translation. But today, our psalm fits with the theme. It fits with our church's sort of moment of the day before, the week before camp. I will be going on uh, the camp, and I, I will just, you know, reiterate some of those prayer requests. They had really great prayer requests for, like, spiritual impact and for, you know, uh, deliverance from the enemy and all that. Yes. Also, just that I would get through it, the spirit is willing and the body is like kind of blubbery. That was the word that I came up with. I don't know if that's a word. It's certainly a reality. So I don't know how this is going to go, but I'm pumped and I need your prayers. It's going to be great. As we go about this work of telling the next generation. And that's the thread. That's the concept that I want to bring you to in the Psalms to see what we're doing with this camp thing. Why are we doing what we're doing with this? Why is the effort put into something like this? Here's what it says in Psalm chapter 48, verses 12 through 14. I say Psalm chapter. That's a little thing that people will get you on. It's not actually Psalm chapter. It's Psalm 48. It's the 48th Psalm. It's not Psalm chapter 48. If I ever do that in the future, you can kind of ha about it and be like really inside and in the weeds on that. Psalm 48. Cha- uh, not chapter. Verses 12 and 14. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. In these verses is a mandate and a comfort. The mandate's there, and I think it's going to scare you. It scares me, but I need you to feel the scare so that you can really embrace the comfort. This verse is saying that it is your responsibility to tell the next generation about God. How are you doing at that? This is one of those sermons, like a sermon on prayer, a sermon on evangelism, where people who have been Christians for some time and have some understanding of the sort of obligations that come with Christianity... And also understand what it's like to try and actually just live it with our own weakness and failure. We get a little guilty. Does anybody feel like they're killing it with this? Does anybody think that they are well equipped and doing a great job with getting the next generation to know the Lord and praise Him? I'm concerned. I'm concerned about it personally, but I'm also concerned about it just as a church. We don't baptize really young people. We want them to really understand what they're saying. We want them to fight for it. But we want them to fight for it. We want these baptisms. Where are they? When you look at your children, when you think about what God has called you to, the people that you have the most influence over, are you... Using your life and the, if you've seen that like um, ad that the Idaho trans, uh, uh, like 
get you to come visit department. Who knew that that was even a thing? But in Idaho, yeah. And if you ever see their ad campaign, it says 18 summers. That's foreboding. And the cats and the cradle and the silvers. You've got 18 summers with these children, and they're not even 18 anymore. What is it? You've got 14 summers left. You've got 13 summers left. What impact are you having with the time remaining over those you have the most influence over? Now, if you're somebody without kids, somebody who doesn't have kids, somebody with grown kids, this is not something that's not for you. This is a sermon about our responsibility to let people know about this glorious and great God, about this only way of salvation. You notice that in the text. It's describing the defensive structures around this city, the safety that is promised for those inside this city. It is our responsibility to communicate, to gain influence with, and then communicate the gospel to people we have influence with. Of course, it is most, this sermon, for parents who have these little people over whom you have incredible impact. But all of us are called, as verse 10 says, to get his praises to the ends of the earth. How are we going to go about that? Well, there's a guy named St. Jerome. I don't know if you know about him. He's somebody that was a contemporary of Augustine. He's in the 300s, 400s, and he was Famous through the church for a lot of different things, but the big one was writing the Vulgate. He translated one of the early, you know, languages of the scriptures into Latin, which was a, at the time of a, a language many, many people spoke. So he's this brilliant, brilliant man, very, very in tune with the scriptures, and this is what he said. Instead of asking parents to give their children a fancy education in secular literature, now Jerome wasn't speaking English, so I don't know who translated it and chose the word fancy, but I think that's very funny. Their children a fancy education in secular literature, but Paul asked the Ephesian laypersons, many of whom were engaged in the ordinary occupations of this life, that they should educate their children in every doctrine and counsel of the Lord. Whoa. Overseers and pastors ought to take note of this. <laughs> Even back in the 300s, people were saying like, so you're the pastor, right? So children, listen to him. Even back then, people were kind of trying to maybe let somebody else take care of this. But what Jerome is referencing is Ephesians 6, when Paul says, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You say to yourself, I see that command there, and obviously I'm supposed to be involved, but somebody else is the professional. Surely, that's why I'm bringing them here. Somebody else can allow them to really know the Lord. Somebody else has this responsibility, right? Timothy Paul Jones, this is a, a modern guy. He's not from ancient times. He's a modern guy. And he, he advocates for family ministry, but he, he does that with numbers. And he says, even after decades of family fragmentation, the most significant influence on children's spiritual formation remains. The, and he's in quotes now because he's quoting from a survey the religious life modeled and taught to them by their parents. Woo! <laughs> it says in Psalm 112, Praise the Lord! Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. So, if you are fearing the Lord and greatly delighting in his commandments... 
then your kids are going to be mighty in the land and they're going to be blessed. Whoa, great. Uh, Here's a problem, though. I'm not really great at either of those things that my kids apparently, like, need me for. Evaluate yourself for just a moment. Are you somebody who fears the Lord and greatly delights in His commandments? Because that's our problem. Our problem is that I like Jack. You know, I'm just getting to know him. I really like his name. Jack Clark. Not a hard syllable, so he could be a newsman. Jack Clark. But I don't really love him yet. I'm just getting to meet him. I love Hobbes. I love uh, Miss Rhonda and obviously my wife Rachel and so many of these people that work in Hope Kids. They're influencing our children in a wonderful, wonderful way. But our hope for our kids is not Hope Church leadership for maybe 90 minutes a week. You are who will lead your children to be those, the next generation who will know the Lord and teach the world about Him. So how are you doing at this? This morning, I don't have a sermon that has a ton of practical advice on how to go about this because I'm not really concerned with giving you a lot of tasks. My primary concern is to connect you to the gospel so that you will have what it takes to really be motivated to go about this in a gospel way. This isn't about being a Pharisee and creating little Pharisees. This isn't about having this perfect set of of daily tasks and prayers and Bible readings and scripture memorizations that you do with your child. This is about actually knowing the Lord so that your life becomes a light. It becomes salty with who God is to those that are closest to you, being spouse and kids. I I think for us, we, we want something different. You know, I'm a professional. Doesn't mean I'm great at it, but my job is to read the Bible and then talk about it weekly. That's what I'm, my job is. And for my kids, they still prefer Hobbes. <laughs> Some of those times when I motivate myself, like, okay, Bible study tonight, kids, I'm going to tell you this story. And I start getting them to it. And they'll go, wait, 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 Mr. Hobbes told it this way. And then they'll start telling me how Mr. Hobbes told the story of the crippled guy coming through the roof and seeing Jesus. I'm like, okay, well, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Mr. Hobbes knows what he's doing, yeah. And on the inside, of course, I'm dying. I understand that other people are very good at this. But we are called to this task for our children. And man, we, we have a lot of problems. Some of the problems, and I want to I list these problems because the psalm that we're going to go through, and we'll go through it quickly, don't get panicky. But the psalm that we're going to go through, it addresses each of these issues. So I want us to feel them so that we're ready for that medicine when it comes. But We are desperate to teach our children, but I I don't know how many of us really know how. I don't know how many of us have really been instructed much in who this God is. Maybe you know him. Maybe you're committed to him. Maybe you're still just investigating. Maybe your kids and their upbringing, raising them up, is why you're investigating Christianity, because you've got to have something to teach them, and you're not really sure what truth is. Okay, but that's an issue. If we don't really know the Lord that we're supposed to be talking about, then how how do you then speak it to your children? You can Google, you can print off a PDF that gives you a great lesson to give your kids before bedtime. Do that. 
But I guarantee you that as soon as you finish, your children don't just go, we hear and we obey and walk away. Your children, when they hear that lesson, will immediately say, yeah, but, and they're going to ask you something. There's going to be some from the hip question and you got to be ready for it. What do you do? We can't be robots. We actually have to be people who know this Lord that we speak of. That's an issue. Another issue is that the world all around us is seeping into our kids from every side. Choose your illustration here. The one that I thought of, I don't really know a lot about Star Wars, but one of the early ones, all the good guys are in a big pile of trash and the walls are closing in. Do you know what I'm talking about? doesn't really matter. You get it. They're people in trash with walls that are closing in like a trash compactor. That's what it feels like with the kids. They're surrounded by stuff. It's stuff that can be good stuff, but it's generally, if it's coming from the world, stuff that doesn't reference the Creator. It can be a beautiful expression of creation, but it generally doesn't make that connection back to the Holy One. And so they're bringing all this in. They're imbibing. They're drinking all of this in. All the while, the world's coming in from every angle. We're ignorant and we're weak. Here's the problem with raising your kids right. They get to see you. You know, I I speak to you, and many of you are my very close friends, and so you see my life more than just this Sunday morning experience. But for many of you, especially people who are newer here, all you get is this very produced 30 minutes. But your kids don't. Your kids don't just see a produced 20-minute Bible study that you do once a week with them. They see everything. They see the life behind your words. There's a really great book. I hope you'll read it. It's called Organic Outreach for Families. We tell you to read a lot of books, so I understand. But this one is a quick read, and it's if this sermon today is touching a, a nerve for you, please find this book and read it. But in it, it says, A child school teacher, youth group leader, and even pastor can get away with preaching or teaching one thing and living out another, but never a parent. For better or worse, the home is the place of brutal honesty where walls are removed and the most instinctual reactions are commonplace. If a Christian parent's goal is to raise son and daughters that live successful and fruitful lives, then they have to model this, and there's no way of getting around it. You can't light a cigarette and say, do as I say, not as I do. You have to actually live this. So what are we going to do? Well, this is where the fact of Christianity, the distinction of Christianity from every other religion really starts to gain traction. Because what I'm telling you is a list of really hard and important things that you have to do. And and you can try to go about doing them. But as I've just said, your kids are going to see all the failure points. Even if you start doing it pretty well, even if you start doing it better than a lot of the other people that are around you, your kids are still going to see the weak points. It can't be that you're perfect and you're teaching them perfection because we're not. So what do we do instead? Rachel and I have been watching this documentary about Heaven's Gate and that group. We're pretty fun people. Yeah, that's what we do in our spare time. But it, it was, it's incredibly interesting. 
in this documentary, this guy convinces these two people, and then the lady dies, but this guy convinces a group of people, and it's only about 35 people, but he convinces them to follow his like way for 22 years. And the way is really intense. The way involves, the pursuit was to go from being human to being aliens. So again, not like any of you are going to get real excited about it today. I'm not worried that you're going to walk out of here going, the rest of it, I don't know. But that Heaven's Gate thing, tell me more. It ended very badly. But, but for 22 years, these people pursued a, a perfection. They pursued this way, this ladder of trying to climb up to. And the way that they were doing it is they were going to try and dismiss everything that made them human, shed every attachment to the planet, which meant that the members had um, uh, to give away family, friends, gender. They had these very androgynous, thank you for the ones who helped me with that word last service, haircuts, you couldn't really tell, sexuality, they had to be chased. They gave away their individuality. They all had names that ended in Odie so that it would be very difficult to even tell them apart. They had to give up their jobs, their money, and all of their possessions. And this group of people did this. Whoa. And of course, what did it result in? It resulted in a a death. First of all, it wasn't true, so it could never lead them to anything. It's not like, wow, they did it, and they're all aliens now. It, it didn't. It wasn't true, and so it couldn't work. But it also can't work because we can't work like that. That cry of perfection, that vice we try and put ourselves in, it just cracks us. Every religion has a way. Every religion has a path. Every religion has these noble truths, these, these pillars, these things you must follow. And Christianity looks at it and flips it totally upside down. Because what God has done for us is what transforms us, not our grit, not our willpower, not our perfectly conceived program for teaching our children about God. The, the gospel is that God has come to be with us and to know us. It's the opposite of a ladder that you have to climb. It's the opposite of this massive set of disciplines that you have to put your head into and just squeeze until everything cracks. It's a love relationship that changes you totally. Here's the best place to look. And we're going to read Ephesians 2 over and over again throughout the course of Hope Church because I want you to go there. I want it to be knee-jerk for you when you're in conversations with your kids, with your wife, with people outside of your home. Because remember, again, this is all about having an authentic relationship with God that then is, is expressed through to people that you have influence over. Your kids, of course, is going to be high on that list, but there's all these other people also. Ephesians 2, it says this, verse 4. God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. What are you doing in this passage? Yeah, that. Nothing. That's what you're giving me and what you do in the course of salvation. Nothing. He describes you as dead. What do dead people do? Nothing. But God makes you alive together with Christ. He had to do this through the process of Jesus coming, being with us, dying on the cross, and then rising from the grave. And he makes us alive together with this Christ. By grace, by this gift, not by works, but by grace you have been saved, raising us up with him and seated us, past tense, 
This is madness. We don't have time. Seating, uh, he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not the result of stuff that you've done, of works, so that no one can brag, no one can boast, no one can have pride. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see the difference? You're not doing so that you're elevated into this higher living, this higher status. God, because of His love for you, while you are still dead, makes you alive with Christ, forms you out of his love for you, and he slowly shapes you. You're his workmanship. And you're now being his and being like him, going to do things like he does. These good works that he's prepared for you, these things that he's laid out for you to go and do. It's totally the opposite. It's totally different. And it's the reason that you can succeed in showing your children, the next generation, who God is. Your imperfections, if this is true, your imperfections are going to be one of the most compelling places that you teach your children about who God is. Because when you ask their forgiveness for your sin, you're modeling for them that you're not perfect. That we are fallen and we serve a God who loves fallen people and makes us alive through Christ for his glory, not ours. You show them that it's okay to be real. That's what this psalm is talking all about. It starts by showing us, just like in Ephesians 2, it starts by showing us how great this God is and what this God has done. It says in verse 1, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king with her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. When you read the Old Testament, you do need to know a little bit about what's going on for the imagery to stick. When he talks about Zion, he talks about a city, he's talking about two different things. He's talking about Jerusalem, which is the capital of a nation called Israel, and it's the place where the temple is. So it's talking about a people, it's talking about a city, it's talking about a nation, but it's also talking about the point at which the holiness of God interacts with this fallen world. That's what the temple was. It's a representation of where God meets the world. And it's in the Old Testament because in Christ, all these things are revealed. All these things are, are fulfilled and shown differently. And so there's an Old Testament, New Testament sort of break there. But in the Old Testament, that temple place, it was where God, who had collected this group of Israelites and was showing the world what his holiness was like, was able to put this moment, this temple, this point in the middle of the camp where the holiness of God was perfectly dwelling. And the people, as they understood who this God was and sacrificed, meaning that something else died on their behalf, were then able to step closer into that presence. It's a picture and a beautiful one. When he's talking about Zion, I want you to think about the, the place where God has met us. Because he could be talking about heaven. He could be declaring how great God is in heaven. 
how incredibly strong his fortress is in heaven. But he doesn't. He talks about Zion because he talks about the point at which God has come to be with us. It's not just God and his glory, which is his own thing. And of course, we want to think about that and praise him for who he is. But it's also a God who has come to be with us, to put his home, to put his throne among his people. And it's a city. It's a city where, and this is so crazy, but it's such an encouragement too, a city where you're not alone. Man, I think so much of us think about our religious pursuit as individual. It's very American. It's this idea that I am who I am, and so what I value is what I choose to value. And so my pursuit of God is a very personal experience. It's something that I'm seeking out. I'm enjoying. I'm benefiting from and growing through. And yet God keeps insisting throughout Scripture on taking our relationship with Him and connecting it, frustratingly, with our relationship with other people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And part of us can say, amen. But then immediately he says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It is a city with his people. I think it's very encouraging when you think about telling the next generation because I am able to learn from, bounce ideas off of, get correction from brothers and sisters who have gone before me. That's why community group's essential. It's why going to community group with old fuddy-duddies is essential. You can find somebody that's not maybe as fun to hang out with, but they've gone a little bit far before you. Some of those gray hairs, a little salt in the pepper, means that they can help you with some of this stuff that you're trying to figure out. Okay, great. Thank you, Lord, that you are so great. Thank you, Lord, that this gospel is so awe-inspiring. But what about the world that is seeping in all the time against our children? Well, keep reading. Verse 4, behold, the kings assemble. These are these coalitions of small nations that are coming to attack Israel. Maybe not so small nations that are coming to attack Zion. They come together. And as soon as they see Zion, they're astounded. And they're in panic. And they took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. This is a, a place that would have been across the sea, and these are, these are foreign nations that are bringing ships to come and to conquer. And yet, by the winds, the Lord crushes. He smashes the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen. In the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Man, we've talked about this so often recently that I don't want to spend a ton of time here. But God is in control. Man, you've got these enemies Ross is very wise to ask you to pray against the enemy. We talked last week or the week before about the the enemy that's like a lion that's prowling around seeking whom he can devour. I think I quoted from Spurgeon talking about how ogres of the enemies of the faith are like these ogres that are real. And they want to crush your bones to make their bread. But God is greater. As Jesus said to us, take heart. I've overcome the world. (laughs) He that is in you is greater than he that's in the world. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It will take a lot of legwork for you to understand the influences that are going into your children's head through the culture. It'll take legwork. It'll take effort. And yet, you serve a God who's greater. It's possible. It seems so compelling to them. It seems so confusing to you. But God is greater. So much so that when you get to that core kind of piece of like, I don't know enough, the world is so big against me, 
But also, I just personally, Lord, I don't, I don't know that, I don't know that you would want to still be with me. What, what's the temptation not to be fully known? It's because you're a terrible person. What's the temptation to hide from God, to sew up little fig leaves? It's because you're ashamed of yourself. Why would you go back to him? Why would you trust him again? Why would you seek again to have this God love you and guide you in your pursuit of your children of the next generation? Well, look at verse 9. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. The people, they're looking at God's invasion point. They're remembering that he cares so much that he has put his temple, his footstool, right in the midst of a people of Israel that he has called out for himself. These are reasons the Old Testament is such a good thing to know and understand. These images are going to gain all of this vibrance and harmony and blow up in your brain with all this beautiful imagery. He's saying that this, this people, this temple that he's put among this people, he is inviting you into through his steadfast love. His love doesn't change even though you do. His covenant with you, he's made with himself. The people are remembering and they're praising God for the fact that he knows and loves them. The psalm finishes this way. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God and our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Yesterday, did you see all the smoke coming from that fire over the mountains? Crazy. It made me wonder, if fire hits, what do we do? What's like the go bag? What do we collect? If the kids are safe, what are the things that we would grab in a half hour scenario, in an hour scenario? Thinking about those poor people in the Ukraine where they said, take a bag. Whoa. What life do you have that you're able to just put in this bag and just roll? See, the people who are writing and reading this psalm were people who lived with the possibility of fire, sure, of famine, but of foes. These coalitions of nations that might sweep down on them from the north, sweep down on them from the east. When they did, think about being like a farmer outside of Jerusalem, and you're always thinking, you're always seeing, you're always looking up to the walls, the great walls of Zion. You're thinking about, you're, in, you're impressed by and you're comforted by the great safety of the beauty of that city, knowing that when they come, when the horns blow, you can run into those walls and be safe. Brothers and sisters, look at your God. I know this is so hard and it's so crazy. And what do you do? What you do is you know the Lord and you love him. And watch as the light of the gospel shines out of you into your children. Yeah, there's a billion things you need to do. But first, you got to be. You can't give what you don't have. Do you know him? Yeah, I've been baptized. Okay. Are you seeking him daily? Is the love that comes from him your defining moment? Let's pray that it would be. Lord God and Heavenly Father. We ask this morning that you would train us to be a people who teach the next generation. Lord, it may be that Hope Church never really gets anywhere. We're always fighting and always setting up and always working. But we always stay at a certain sort of number and seem to have a smaller impact. But what if, Father, this church is a seed? 
It goes down into the ground, and it's small. But what comes from it, Lord? What if that next generation, what if that next generation of people who understand this culture, who speak this language, burst out and reap a great harvest, Lord? What, what could be if we would be faithful to know you, to love you, and to share you with our children, with those we have influence over, whether they're in our house, in our neighborhood, or beyond? Lord, equip your people to do your work for your glory and our good. In your holy name we pray. Amen.